Hello and welcome to The Right Idea, where we discuss the people, policy, and politics that drive Texas. I'm your host, Brian Phillips. I'm the Chief Communications Officer at the Texas Public Policy Foundation. And with me always is my co-host, our Vice President of Research, Derek Cohen. Derek, how are things going? Uh, very well, very well. Closing in on the end of the football season. Looking forward to that. Well, of course, you would have to bring it up because being from Michigan, <laughs> you guys are kind of having a moment with your national championship. South Michigan, it's in Ohio. <laughs> South, <laughs> oh, that's right. I'm sorry, you're from Ohio, but you went to Michigan or went to at least uh, uh, claim that as a school. Um, but having a moment with the Detroit Lions, of course. Um, so, you know, what do you, what do you think about all that? Now, this is something we should have delved into when we had a uh, uh, you know fellow uh, sojourner uh, Brad Johnson on the on the. Pod. That's true. That's true. But uh, no, it's 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 going really great. You know, we've seen a lot of a lot of success under uh, MCDC Motor City Dan Campbell with the uh, the hashtag BNL, the brand new Lions. Um, you know, whether or not they well, uh, all of it kind of has to be new because they yeah. haven't done this for forty years, I guess. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I mean, yeah, their their amount of success in recent years is almost paralleled by that of the Cowboys, but as far as uh, lack <laughs> of achievement. But all, all joking aside, all joking aside, is it's it's really good to see, and I think. That that it's, you know, it's going to be interesting as opposed to like a legacy dynasty. I think about Detroit's about as opposite of that as it comes. <laughs> um, and so seeing success on, on their behalf is So actually... you may be wondering why all this hot sports talk. Well, that's just because normally at this time we would be getting our interim update from Derek. But I think literally nothing has happened in the last two weeks <laughs> in terms of Texas legislation, policy, legislature. So there's not really anything to report. Is that yeah, right? I think, yeah, that's true. I mean, we did talk a little bit about the interim process last time. But mm. I do say... I think that, um, was it two episodes from now? Uh, it'll be post-primary. Uh, We're going to have a lot of stuff to talk about in that regard. Well, that's right. That's right. We have, uh, we obviously have the, the political factions are taking over, and there's probably a lot to talk about in terms of the political side of things, but we don't delve too much into that. Um, I'll talk a little bit about politics, but mostly about policy. And one of the ways that you can find out about policy, and that's my segue into my <laughs> shameless plug into our fantastic newsletter. It's called The Post. You can subscribe to it at texaspolicy.com slash the post. Uh, we always have some exclusive content. Content for me, it's always kind of a wrap up of how the TPPF takes on things that are going on in the world. There's always something fun and Texas oriented at the end of that newsletter. Again, you can subscribe. We would love to uh, to have you on that list at TexasPolicy.com/slash/the post. Okay. Well, in lieu of our um, of having no interim update, we will just jump right into our interview for the day. And we're very very excited to to uh, to have Mark Mills on the show. Mark Mills is now part of the TPPF family. He's had a long distinguished career uh, prior <laughs> to being with TPPF. He has a has a a resume as long as both of my arms. And so, um, uh, Mark, thanks for being on the show. Uh, I'm going <laughs> to try thanks for joining with tppf uh to bring your vast knowledge and experience of which i'm going to do it no justice uh here with this intro uh, as a way of uh, of letting people know who you are so um so i just kind of hit the highlights all the fun stuff uh mark mill's career includes serving uh in president wagon president excuse me President Reagan's White House Science Office, advising multinational private sector firms on energy policy, and served as faculty fellow at Northwestern University's McCormick School of Engineering and Applied Science. I believe he's actually a physicist. Is that right, Mark? Is that did you get that? I one am. Right? I, I, I confess. I generally, don't confess those things at cocktail parties. It's a conversation. So this, isn't just, this isn't just our, you know, your average pundit talking about, you know, <laughs> gas prices on Fox News. I mean, this guy really knows what he's talking about. He also writes a lot. He is a prolific writer, has authored several books and published his pieces appearing regularly in the Wall Street Journal, the City Journal, and Real Clear, and was named Energy Writer of the Year by the American Energy Society in 2016. Most recently, Mark Mills was a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute before TPPF stole him away from our friends there. Thank you very much, uh, our <laughs> folks at the Manhattan Institute. Mark Mills, all that to say, welcome to the show and thank you for being on. It's great. Great to join. I'm, uh, I am I have a daughter-in-law who's from Austin. She's a Texan. So I've already told her I'm a virtual Texan now. And uh, some of my friends told me I need to own cowboy boots. I can't wear East Coast loafers. Um, you know, I'm a Canadian. Originally, I'm still Canadian citizen and American both. And 
I finally am part of a state that's almost as big as some of the Canadian provinces. Provinces. <laughs> well, you look. If Texas can elect a Canadian as a United States senator, then I guess then I guess we will accept you. I say that everybody knows I used to work for Ted, so I can say uh, that I'm part of the family. That's a great line. So if he could be a senator, uh, <laughs> so can I, right? Is that what that says? <laughs> well, that's great. Well, we hope to have you down here in Austin. That's great that you're able to do it uh, remotely uh, from up there and near the swamp. It's, it looks a little. It look actually looks pretty nice outside your window. It doesn't yes. look very swampy. <laughs> Yeah. Um, but, uh, close, but we appreciate it's you. close by. It's close right, by. Well, it's close by. hard. Let's jump into, you know, energy issues. Um, you know, Texas just went through a cold spell. We had a freeze. Everybody, you know, uh, for the last three years, we've been on pins and needles every time ERCOT tells us to conserve because yeah. of obviously because of winter storm URI, people lost, you know, tons of people lost their power. Few people lost their lives. <laughs> I mean, it was a very serious thing. And yeah. so uh, there's been, you know, since then, the, the debate's been about, well, how do we fix the grid? How do we, do we weatherize? What do we do about uh, the market? All of these things kind of coming out at once. And there's been some work done at the legislative level to fix the grid. Um, did you follow this? Were you following this? Of course, now with your, your new uh, remote home in, in Austin, were you following this? And how did you think, you know, Texas performed um, at a time when people were kind of on kind of nervous about the grid? Well, performed better this time than the last time when it got, as you know, it's obvious. I followed it very closely last time and. And wrote about it, and I, in fact, I wrote a piece right in the middle of the great, that last great freeze, and pointed pointed out the obvious that Texas would have been far better off having spent all the money that they'd spent on windmills and solar arrays and transmission lines to get to the windmills if all that money had been spent on nuclear power plants. It would have been a far better outcome. We would never have had, had any reason to notice the storm. I understand the complexities of what really caused the outage. So there's as they say, plenty of blame to go around. Mm -hmm. But the the creation of electric grids, and I use the word plural, it's not just that the Texas grid is isolated largely from the rest of the United States, it's the U.S. does not have a single grid. And there's a lot of mythology about that because many countries have a single grid. We have dozens of grids, arguably hundreds, but certainly, certainly do a dozen major grid zones, if you like. And the fact that we have achieved something that's really remarkable is provide electricity for virtually everybody and everything in the country extraordinarily high reliability it's one of the greatest achievements in engineering and social progress in a century it you know when y2k happened and the engineering societies made a list including the national academy of sciences made a list of the greatest accomplishments of the 20th century number one on the list the electric grid and not because it produces electricity, it's because it produces electricity whenever people need it. That is the key phrase that is the astonishing accomplishment combined with that they can afford. And if there is a disaster that's, uh, that's uh, facing large regions of the country and even the whole country is ignoring the primacy on grids that they are available when people need them. The power is always available at a price people can afford. That was now, for a century the primacy, and that has been eroded and even destroyed in some states. Well, I was going to say, Derek, that that was way too positive of a first <laughs> remark as, as to the the uh, ingenuity of, of the Americans um, to, to to form this grid. Usually, we like the doom and gloom here. Um, uh, so, well, Mark, I gave you some doom. Yeah, you ended well. You had a very, very on brand. Yeah, we uh, can ruin it. Sprinkling of doom with a sprig of gloom on the side, yeah. <laughs> well, well, let's get into it. Let's talk a little bit more about the doom and gloom then. What are the biggest? I mean, in your mind, I mean, you follow you follow these issues every single day. You wake up and live and breathe this stuff. What are what would you consider to be the most urgent issues regarding energy, uh, whether it's infrastructure or, or what have you, uh, energy policy today? What should, be, what should we all be thinking about? So you just described a pretty, you know, dystopian lifestyle. I wake up and live and breathe these issues every day. <laughs> I mean, in addition to, you know, you know, Thanks. interacting with Thanks your family and all those things that we yeah. have to do, eating and drinking and sleeping. You know, uh, it's the same thing in general for energy as it is for the electric grid. The biggest issue facing the United States right now, in fact, the Western world, and uh, this is not true in China, it's not true in, in Africa, but it's true in Europe and the United States. The biggest energy issue is the failure to recognize what the proper order of priorities are for providing energy across the board, whether it's electricity, fuel for vehicles, 
transportation, food. Energy is used for everything. It's maybe self-evident to state it, but that nothing exists without energy. All all services, all products require energy. <laughs> energy, not, I hate to redound to physics. There is nothing in the universe without energy. Energy, energy is everything. In fact, physicists would point out to you that matter is just an intermediate form of energy. But anyway, energy matters. And the primacy of uh, policies has to be recognizing first order affordability and related and close second is reliability. Reliability meaning when I need it by the hour, by the minute, by the month and day, but also the nature of the supply, the supply chain of itself, that it's reliable, geopolitically and socially reliable. And then third order, not co-equal, but third order, sustainability. And sustainability doesn't mean climate change. Sustainability means is what I'm building sustainable over time. Can I keep it operating for decades? Is it sustainable in terms of its environmental impacts as well? But broadly speaking, the kinds of impacts, that they, those things matter, but they have to be subsidiary to the primacy of I need it when I need it, and I have to be able to have it so I can afford it, because it's you know, rich people, it's not an issue. But not if, if everybody were, were rich, we wouldn't have very many problems. Everybody's not rich. Derek, t t um, Texas, I feel like along with our budget and education, energy is one of those issues that mm -hmm. we hit every single year and, and not in marginal ways. It's not like we're just, you know, sort of uh, reacting to the margins. We're, there's big issues every single year, every single session mm -hmm. in Texas. How, you know, uh, to what Mark has laid out here, how do you think Texas has, has been reacting and responding to these issues of affordability, reliability, and then in Mark's definition of sustainability? Well, the best definition or the best grade I could give Texas's addressing of uh, kind of the emergent policy issues that arise in energy production and consumption is probably an incomplete, right? Mm. And that's because <laughs> essentially, you know, they're, they're, to Mark be, would agree with you. Yeah, to, to, be, to be fair, <laughs> yeah. they're kicking out a moving uh, goalpost with both the state uh, growing leaps and bounds year over year over year. Yeah. And, and not only that, in terms of people, you also have a lot of industry moving here as well. And industries yeah. are prolific consumers of power. Mm -hmm. Now, we've been able to keep up with it, as we've discussed so far to it, even though recently we've had a couple pinch points uh, in which the uh, conservation appeals have been uh, issued. But that being said is we're still staying ahead of the curve. Now, again, that all exists within the the variability of that area you know but well everything that the renewables put on the grid mm -hmm. that may or may not actually be there in fact you know we were talking about you know a couple days ago where and it was down in the you know mid-teens uh in the morning and we saw after we kind of emerged from that and you know nothing more to see here the the, fo the the advocacy groups that support renewable energy de uh, development were all out there. Oh, wind completely delivered. You know, of course, they are very truncated on the actual time period of which they're actually evaluating the fuel mix on the grid. Sure, they're cherry picking uh, the times, right? Yeah, I can tell you when the sun's out and it's shining and there's no clouds. Like solar does pretty well. You know, yeah, right. it turns it just turns out we can't pass a law that says it's sunny all the time. Or you know, London would probably be a not, much nicer place to go. Um, <laughs> All that, all that being said is I think that we're, you know, we're doing well here, but again, it's always trying to just stay one step ahead of that looming mm -hmm. shortage, that looming catastrophe. And I don't really know, at least we haven't seen a whole lot of direct action in that specifically if we look at, you know, some of the work that's been done at the legislature, you know, we've had, we spent $10 billion trying to you know, basically get a shot in the arm subsidizing capacity. We've tr we've promoted firming requirements. Now, whether or not that actually gets administratively added, we have yet to see. Mm -hmm. And so, again, I think incomplete's the best you could say because we're not necessarily, we're solving problems for the immediate, but we have the exact same problems at a greater level, looming at five, you know, at six, 12, mm -hmm. 18, 24 months, and we're just staying ahead of that curve. So I think a much more sustainable, to Mark's point, solution is what's going to be needed. And can I actually yeah, ask yeah. Mark a question off sure, that? Get Mark, <laughs> if I can, and I really, I, I latched on to what you said earlier about uh, the first winter storm, you know, your winter storm area and the uh, fuel mix. So one of the things we discussed here, we've discussed it with Jason Isaacs, we've discussed it with, uh, you know, Brent Bennett. One of the things that we discuss here is nuclear. So, yeah. and, you know, everyone says, oh, the federal government gets in the way, so on, so on. And I think that's a very simple. Can you kind of walk us through 
What is the holdup on nuclear and what would a nuclear supportive infrastructure look like for the entirety of a plant life cycle? I understand it's kind of a broad question, but I think that that nuclear component's a vital part of what we're talking about here with thermal dispatchable. Yeah, well, the, the nuclear question, obviously, it requires a lot of time. <laughs> People have a lot of anxieties and myths about things they believe both proponents and the opponents and as you know most environmental groups are still firmly opposed to building nuclear plants and as this will you know you you started out by pointing out that i worked for reagan which kind of dates me and i just want to say for the record i was a child in the reagan white house <laughs> science office so that <laughs> and as a child i had i had arrived in america uh, on the eve of the accident at Three Mile Island. So I ended up, because I was working in the nuclear industry at that time, spending the week of the accident at Three Mile Island. And then I spent the next six years of my life on the road defending the virtues of nuclear energy. Obviously, I failed because of my mission, because the United States has largely abandoned its nuclear infrastructure. It takes time to rebuild infrastructure. China's been working very hard to rebuild, to build a nuclear infrastructure. I'd say arguably they're ahead of the world at the moment and their capacity to build nuclear plants at scale doesn't mean that we, they can stay there but that's where they are now uh the french are arguably second place the russians are close second place in their capacity to build and export nuclear plants which is kind of ironic when you think about it since they're a big exporter of oil and gas so the short answer to your question about nuclear energy is it requires a couple of things it does require sadly but necessarily a federal legislation law we need the regulations to be friendly to taking nuclear risks and to accelerating the permitting process there's no way you can escape the permitting process for anything frankly i mean i'm not anti-permitting i'm a pro sane uh, permitting and we have let permitting get out of control for lots of things not just for nuclear plants so that has to be fixed uh the, it has to be de-risked in that sense at the same time it will take time for the engineers to build the new classes of reactors the, the exciting ones everybody talks about you know small modular reactors which aren't small are not really modular by the way <laughs> they're still huge but that's okay it's a nice word but there are nuclear power plant designs now on the books so many being built uh that range in size from a uh, nuke that could power a home literally uh, a building the size of a large house not the reactor but the power levels all the way up to trailer mounted megawatt class nuclear power plants to the the so-called small reactors at several hundred you know one to two hundred megawatts i think probably all of them will work technically uh when they get built some are under construction whether all of them will be buildable at scale and be economic you only find out by starting to build them to accelerate that process will take uh political leadership at the state and federal level it will require both it will require sta a state or states to say we'll be friendly to nuclear power plants we want them here of all sizes and it will take federal regulations therefore i think congressional action uh, before the congressional action will take political leadership where a president says this will matter and does the usual administrative orders pushes the agencies pushes congress with all that is to say and you made a very important point getting around the challenges of the next months or a few years are going to you have to deal with what we've got uh to get to building grids that matter on uh, decade time frames we build grids to last 30 years i mean the power plants are supposed to last 30 to 40 years nuclear power plants probably will last a century the current ones are many of them over a half century old now unlike wind turbines which last a couple decades at best and solar arrays which maybe last maybe last couple decades probably last 10 years before they have to be junked uh that which is a whole separate story so nukes nukes have a, a huge role for sensible long-range planning they can make absolutely no difference whatsoever in the short term because you can't build them fast enough which is the sad truth it's like it's like your personal life you plan for the future and you deal with the present and that's what adults do and we don't we don't have adult we don't have adult energy policy anymore 
in most that's, places. That's actually a really good segue. Um, into Can we a, clip that and put that online? Yeah, absolutely, 100%. <laughs> uh, Mr. Jefferson, we'll make a note of that one. Um, all right, so into the, that's a great segue into my next um, uh, discussion is, is um, you know, you said, you said something to the effect of, you know, we've got to use what we've got. What, we, you know, for decades now, we've been hearing, you know, the left and the media, but I repeat myself, keep pushing this narrative um, about the green energy transition. I feel like we're, you know, we've been 10 years away from transitioning for the last 40 years since I've been paying attention uh, uh, to politics and you've written recently and I may be I may be misquoting you but calling essentially the the green transition hoax I mean this essentially this fanciful idea that we're gonna start transitioning and to be using all renewables or all you know wind and solar or what have you you have a great line in one of your most recent pieces in which you you quote Philip K Dick and and he says reality is that which when you stop believing in it doesn't go away And you use that kind of as a jumping (laughs) off point to the reality of the situation is that we've got to use what we have. And then if you want to get to, you know, affordability and reliability and sustainability, that that, you know, things like fossil fuels are going to have to be part of the mix uh, for a long time. And that these fanciful ideas of, you know, completely relying on, uh, you know, net zero and these things where we're, you know, almost entirely relying on uh, on renewable uh, energy is is really not not, you know, what we would define as reality. Um, can you talk a little bit about, you know, the Green New Deal and and this this fanciful idea of the green transition and kind of what is the reality behind where we are in terms of transitioning our energy sources yeah. uh, in America? You know, I, we should be clear for those of those in uh, your audience that are not science fiction aficionados, Philip K. Dick was one of the great science fiction writers of the 60s. A lot of the movies that you, you've probably seen, or many people have seen, like Minority Report, were based on books and stories he wrote. Brilliant guy, um, wrote science fiction. And uh, really good science fiction writers have a really good grip on reality because they like to <laughs> violate reality to write stories. And I, I, you might not be surprised to know that. So do the people who wrote The Green New Deal, apparently. Mm-hmm. Well, what's well, not? This is where we get to. I've never said. I've never used the word hoax, uh, so that is a misquote. All right, uh, that was my word. I'll, I'll admit it's it. It's okay. There's a reason. The reason I don't use that word is not because there aren't hoaxes in the world. There's lots of pe- there's hoaxes and hucksters, uh, uh, plenty to go around. I use the word in a paper, and I've used a lot in speeches. Uh, the energy transition delusion, which may sound harsher, but but there's a reason for that. Delusion is a very specific word. It's not an insult in the sense of Burton's intellectual capacity, nor nor is I, am I implying that people are, are doing it to uh, trick you. Uh, a delusion means that you believe something that's not true, hence Philip K. Dick's quote. And the and I'm uh, even though I'm a physicist, I'm a great believer in the meaning of words, what they actually mean. So a transition means something. You'd be leaving one thing and going to the other. That's a transition. Well, uh, you have to, we hear all the time about that we are in a, an accelerating energy transition that we're in, in a an energy transition now and we've been spending trillions of dollars we meaning Europe and the United States last 20 years attempting to transition away from dependency on hydrocarbons oil gas and coal so what are the facts what is reality when you know you can believe in a transition hence but is that what reality is? You stop believing <laughs> the things which you stop believing in is still true. What's still true is that hydrocarbons dominate the world's energy supply. They dominate America's energy supply. Twenty years ago, globally, about eighty-four percent of world's energy hydrocarbons. Today, it's down two percentage points, two percentage points to eighty-two percent. So that's not a transition. It doesn't feel like a transition. It's not a transition. No, it's not. <laughs> solar, solar and wind, a lot more of it. There was almost none in twenty years ago. A lot of it today. Uh, combined, nearly 4% of world energy, not electricity, but world energy, energy matters because we fly airplanes, make, you know, we make, we make food, we make fuels, we, we make fertilizer, all those things require energy, not electricity necessarily. But here's, here's the kicker. If we're transitioning away from hydrocarbons, you would be using fewer hydrocarbons. I mean, we spent all this money. We're not using fewer hydrocarbons. The quantity of hydrocarbons consumed, not the percentage. Today is far higher than it was 20 years ago or 10 years ago. In fact, if you measure it over 20 years, the increase in consumption of hydrocarbons is equal in energy equivalent terms to six Saudi Arabia's worth of energy demand, of hydrocarbon demand. And as the world stands today, 
global energy supplies, 10% still comes from burning wood, 10% from burning wood, which is put differently, two and a half times more energy globally comes from burning wood, the oldest energy source known to man, than does from wind and solar combined. This, Those are just facts. That's the reality. That does not look, smell, or sound like a, quote, transition, accelerating or otherwise. So that's that's sort of where I start. I mean, it's, the word has a meaning. We're not transitioning, mm -hmm. and we haven't transitioned. Could we? Is it possible? It's a different question, right? Could, could we spend even more money, which is what Europe and the United States are going to do, uh, and transition? The answer to that, no. It's not my opinion. Let's just look at the International Energy Agency's aspirational forecasts for doing far more than everybody's saying they're going to do for the year 2040 or 2050 in their forecasts the share of world's energy still comes from hydrocarbons it's more than half this is the forecast which i think is wildly unrealistic but even if i take it on face value the world still needs more than half of its energy being supplied by hydrocarbons 30 years from now that's not a transition that is away from hydrocarbons. And in fact, the absolute quantity of hydrocarbons consumed will be in their in their scenarios only decreased slightly from today. Well, okay. Maybe, maybe that could happen. Well, it, let's just say you're in the camp that thinks that should happen. Whatever. You you'd want to have an answer to the question: if more than half your energy is still coming from hydrocarbons, how much will that cost? How reliable will that be? And who's supplying it? Are they our friends? Is it and us? Let me jump and let me jump in just to ask the question I know, you know, some people on the left will be screaming at right now. I mean, there's this there's part of the narrative is that, well, that, that's because there are evil companies or evil politicians or whoever, you know, the Illuminati, whatever it is around the world that is actually, you know, enacting policy to stop it or that they are, you know, exerting influence that is preventing the transition uh, versus whatever, you know, you're describing as the reality on the ground. How would you answer somebody that says, look, it's just a matter of better policy policy if the Americans and the Chinese and the Russians and whoever would just move in a different direction with better, um, you know, pro-Earth uh, policies, uh, then we would move, then we would be able to transition faster. Well, you know, it's a fair question in, uh, from anybody. Whether I didn't mean it to be that fair. I was actually hoping that it would be more of a straw man argument, but, <laughs> no, but, but nevertheless. <laughs> you can, I mean, it's a fair question. It really is a fair question. Because, right, moving on, Derek. Yeah, <laughs> your, your opinion. <laughs> I, I'm sorry. So, I, I, and by that, I mean, I mean, I, I could be uh, insulting or mean to people who believe things that I think are really dangerous and bad and dumb. But the truth <laughs> is, for those people who aren't dangerous, bad, or dumb, but people who are serious and believe things that I think are demonstrably not true, they're serious about it, but they're right. Politics matters. I mean, in the beginning of my latest book on technology and forecasting, I don't do politics except in the foreword and the epilogue. And I point out, you know, the Charles Krauthammer, the great uh, uh, journalist, analyst, he actually was trained as a scientist, a psychiatrist, brilliant guy. He's, he wrote and said often, that he spent his life writing about politics because the politics matter. If you don't get the politics right, his line, nothing else matters. So governments ha have influence. It's true. And, and or corporations working with or against governments have influence. All that's true. And so, I, but I would say two things about that uh, assertion that I hear all the time, that the reason we didn't transition, big oil, Big oil prevented it. Big oil funds this. Big oil funds that. Well, you can do. You can check the facts on this stuff. I mean, the t collective amount of lobbying and PR by all the big oil companies and their surrogates combined is a tiny fraction of the amount of money spent by the green. Uh, we hate hydrocarbons organizations. Oh, and I mean, literally a tiny fraction. You know, they the green organizations have budgets collectively counted in the tens of billions of dollars a year. And not even a fraction of the amount of money is being spent by the traditional energy industries and PR and lobbying. So if you just did that, you could say, well, does that mean that the guy spending less money are more effective? Maybe you could you could say you could make that case. So what I what I like to focus on is not just the fact that politics matter. Of course they matter. So the other side is right. If they could force more of it, could we get more of it? Yes, it, you would. That isn't the issue. Is, is it affordable and is it destructive? Is it is it what you think it is? So I try to focus most of my work, not on the politics per se, to, as I said, I'll say again, politics matter. But to answer that question, you have to understand something about the underlying technologies and the science of those technologies. The assertion is, 
that if we had perfect policies, we'd have more wind and solar and things would get cheaper and more reliable and better. Well, that's that's easy to analyze without having to do anything with the politics because we know a lot about the engineering and the physics of solar arrays and transmission lines, hydrocarbons. This is knowable stuff, demonstrable stuff, provable, provable stuff. And the problem is that when you dig into it, what you find is everything that you think you were told is not true. Solar is not cheaper at scale, delivered to lots of people all the time. It's more expensive. It's cheaper when it's running, when the sun is shining. It is cheap electricity. That is true. But to supply electricity all the time, whenever and wherever you need it, if you depended on just solar, it would cost everybody a lot more money. It would be far less reliable. That's not speculation or anti-solar. It's just a fact. Electric cars, for example, are inherently more expensive, not because of subsidies or the absence of subsidies, because of how they're built, the kinds of materials they're built from. Conventional cars, just in a simplistic way to look at this, conventional cars are 85% steel and iron by weight. Steel and iron are real cheap, really easy to get. Electric vehicles by weight are about 85% copper, nickel, aluminum, molybdenum, lithium, whole, a whole soup of very expensive minerals and they weigh more. So what is surprise, they're more expensive. I mean, all those kinds of things are not uh, subject to manipulation by other politicians or lobbyists for oil companies, they're just facts. So I, I spent a lot of my time trying to analyze and uh, explain what the underlying facts are as they exist today. But when I say things like that, it's inherently more expensive inherently more difficult so it doesn't matter about the policies to try to make things quote green they're and they're not greener and they're not renewable so renewable energy isn't renewable because the machines have to be built and they wear out which means you're always building something like all machines and it's not green because green is a mythical word that is highly elastic you have to dig up lots of minerals that have environmental impacts social impacts you know real world effects wherever the mines are for the nickel cadmium if selenium, all the different elements we need. We're gonna let jump, we're gonna let Derek jump in here real quick. He's got a yeah, question for you. Yeah, really quick, Mark, and because I, I want to seize on something that you that you said earlier, because I thought it was a really good point about about the EVs and specifically about you now. You mentioned you know the kind of the 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 percentage weight on you know rare earth minerals and stuff like that, obviously driving up the cost. But I think that we've seen a you know I think that's reified by the actual practical example that we've seen recently, where a lot or you know. A lot of folks are moving away from EVs. A whole bunch of people had, their, you know, this is not going to surprise you in Austin. A lot of folks driving Teslas around here. Um, <laughs> but a lot of folks nice, during our last nice cold. Yeah, good, good work if you can get it or, you know, good car if you can afford yeah, it, I suppose. Right. <laughs> um, but uh, a lot of folks were complaining that they weren't able to charge their cars due to the, the low temperature and they forgot to the, the prime the battery. We've also seen recent headlines about actual manufacturers who you know we don't want to be too cynical on this pod just kidding sometimes <laughs> we do but we've seen them ramp up in the you know kind of at the beginning of the bomb administration having you know fiscal forecasts wherein the percentage of their production line would be a lot more ev a lot of them are walking away from it. you know i remember was it hertz kind of made this whole big mm -hmm. thing about the evs with tom brady apparently he yeah. used to play football for a small school up north um <laughs> all that Some to say is michigan plugs uh, yeah I, I mean, if you insist uh but all that to say all that to say is now we kind of seen a, a wholesale about face whether it's on the retail side or even the manufacturing side simply because of those reasons that you just mentioned can we can you talk a little bit about like energy because you you delineated between electricity and and energy and i think that's a very good yeah. point can you delineate can you talk a little bit more about how evs in and of themselves are not a sustainable model for you know modern transport sure and i think this is the, the problem we have is the politics and the cultish emotionality around evs and tesla's a particular sort of color <laughs> color this and and to come back to facts um so there's been a lot of speed bumps for EV advocates in in uh, in recent months. No pun intended. <laughs> no, it wasn't. It was intended. It was not unintended. We caught so it. We caught it. Expression is not appropriate. The plan was intended. EVs are not accelerating. No, they're decelerating. No, anyway. Look, twenty twenty three saw twenty twenty three saw record sales for EVs globally. Twenty twenty four will see more EVs sold than last year. That'd be my prediction. Uh, 
So there's not there's a, a there's a deceleration of the growth rate in mm -hmm. EV. And of course, as I have a, of a piece coming out very shortly uh, in City Journal as a distinguished senior fellow of the Texas Public Policy Foundation, of course. <laughs> anyway. We really appreciate the shameless plug. So I, I like how you worked <laughs> well, your book in earlier, but I mean, you don't have to do it that way. Just, we gotta, you know, we, if you have we, one, gotta hold put, it up. Yeah, yeah we'll, we'll put it in the show notes. Yeah, exactly. we'll put the, yeah, right there, there we go. We'll put the, There's a book. the, the website can, up for the folks at home. You, you can buy it on Amazon. It's still available. It's a good book. <laughs> uh, and I, and I, you should buy it, and I'm going to quiz you on the next podcast to make sure you read it. <laughs> Excellent. Fair enough. The, the, thing, the thing that... Uh, the advocates are right about is that there will be more EVs sold. EVs are interesting. They have lots of exciting features. Uh, there's a big market for EVs, not just early adopters, which is we've sort of milked that. Then there's people who are wealthy, two, two and three car households uh, for a second or third car. EV is actually for many consumers, pretty nice option. Like a lot of consumers like sports cars, like pickup trucks. The, the, the thing I argue about is the claim and it's now cemented in legislation in 12 states and the u.s epa is attempting to make this a federal requirement that all vehicles should be evs that that is not only not a good idea it's a profoundly bad idea profoundly expensive and it's not going to accomplish what people claim and think evs the issue about evs is not that teslas are not nice cars as you say it's, you know, if you can afford one, it's great. They're expensive cars. You cannot explain Elon Musk's success away on the basis of subsidies. People don't buy eighty dollars $90,000 cars for, you know, five dollars to $10,000 subsidy. You, it's got to be a good car. It's a good car. doesn't mean it's a good car for everybody. The most important points that I try to get to are related to when the government gets involved, not, not a, a Tesla making a car that millions of people want to buy, which is true globally. He's now the second biggest EV maker in the world after BYD. BYD last quarter just surpassed Tesla. Of course, I don't know if I believe BYD sales numbers inside of China because it's China, but eventually they'll surpass Tesla. But last year in America, half of all EVs sold were Teslas. So it's still a Tesla story. And the, so the issue that's in people's heads is to your point about Hertz, people you know, getting unhappy with EVs, they're charging. A lot of the technical problems can and will be solved. Uh, this is typical how engineers work. That isn't the issue. The issue is, again, will EVs become cheaper than regular cars? Because they aren't now. Are they better than regular cars? Or we're told they're simpler, therefore they'll be cheaper vehicles. And this is critical. The only reason we're getting subsidies and mandates is because EVs, quote, cut CO2 emissions. So just to say in simplest terms, the, spending the whole podcast on beating up on EVs, they aren't simpler. They're differently complicated. The data show it takes more labor to build an EV overall than a regular car. And the complexity just moves. Instead of the drivetrain being complex, the fuel system's complex. The battery weighs almost a thousand pounds, has thousands of parts and welds, cooling systems, structural systems, safety systems, power electronics. It's a complicated electrochemical engine for fuel, trading off for a complicated physical chemical engine for internal combustion for a regular car. So it's a complexity swap. That What that means is that the reliabilities is, and, and failures and maintenance are just different. They're not better, they're different. And what Hertz discovered is that it was a lie that they were cheaper to maintain. They weren't. And in these early days, and it's still early days, early days for EVs, they're actually more expensive to maintain. And Consumer Reports at the end of last year finally had enough EVs on the road to do their annual reliability you know, ratings based on real world, ex real world experience with real people driving EVs. And all of the EVs that they uh, rated based on consumer surveys are less reliable than average, not more reliable. That'll get fixed, right? That, that's fixable, but it doesn't mean that they're gonna be cheaper. They're inherently more expensive because of the nature of what the vehicle's like. But the last thing I'll say about EVs, the most important thing in terms of why we're being told we have to drive them, the legislation to do that, the subsidies, is that they're supposed to radically cut CO2 emissions because they obviously have no tailpipe. But when you count not just the power plants to fuel the battery, that's, a, that's an important story. But when you count the materials used to build the battery and the energy and emissions associated with that, what you discover is that we don't have really good data on that. We have a range of data. No one really knows how much CO2 is emitted to build the EV, but we know what the range is. So when you hear somebody say that owning an EV cuts CO2 emissions, that might be true, but they don't, in fact, technically know how much it cuts emissions 
or if at all. It, in the technical literature, it's very clear. It's entirely possible that depending on where the materials are sourced, the copper and the aluminum in particular, that the EV will le lead to no net global reduction of CO2 emissions. Now, if that's found out to be true, and it is technically a possibility, and is in fact more likely to be the case in the future than the past, given the nature of, of the engineering of mines, the nature of you know how we can mine copper and, and produce aluminum, given those realities, then the whole premise, the whole basis for mandating EVs, subsidizing them, evaporates. You'd think, you'd think the government would want to know for sure whether and how much EVs cut CO2 emissions instead of believing hand-waving assertions. Now, I'm not naive. People, people obviously really believe something that's either delusional or just not true. Love you working the delusional back in there. You know, one thing I will say about um, about EVs is, look, I really appreciate the fact that Elon Musk is trying to build a truck, uh, um, and especially because he is, he's headquartered here in Texas. So I oh, really do appreciate that he's yeah. trying to build a truck. But awesome where, truck. Does the, where does the gun rack go in that thing? I don't, I don't see a place for it at all. Um, you don't think you don't think the place for is it? A <laughs> I I don't know. I, I want to take a bet on on uh, somebody doing an aftermarket gun rack for a cyber truck. I think you're going to find Ab one. Absolutely. Um, all right. Cool. Well, we've kind of come to the, to the end of our show, at least the substantive and and uh, uh, policy part of it. I do like. We always like to try to end with uh, something a little fun, um, and but informative as well. And and this could relate to energy. I mean, maybe energy is a major issue too. But but thought about doing a power <laughs> ranking instead of just like you know your top three issues. We talked about predicting last and uh, the last show about what you think the top issues are going to be maybe more of a power ranking in terms of maybe things that people aren't thinking about or issues that have have recently come to the fore that may end up being uh, policy issues for Congress or for the for the for the country maybe even you know coming up in the political world obviously we're getting very close now to having uh, the two whoever the two candidates are going to be you know Biden and Trump for uh, uh, for the for the general election so maybe something different will happen uh, Derek, do you have a do you have a power ranking of, of issues outside of the the normal issues, or what do you got? Yeah, so I mean, obviously, this goes with the stipulation that uh, you know border, which we always talk about, you know, right. first and foremost, border, border, and border. Yeah, so so starting at number four. Uh, um, <laughs> no, I think one of the big issues, and and like this isn't to denigrate uh, the border, or I even have on my list here, uh, energy production and independence is something that you know that's going to be big during the next session as well. But I think the biggest issue that all stems from border energy, many of the other things, are the economic uh, the economic yeah. headwinds that I think we're going to find ourselves in. Mm -hmm. And that's not only because, to Mark's point, that we are, or so to say that the current administration is pursuing, you know, less energy-rich policies that actually put, that increase cost overhead as we do any of the millions of things we do in our day-to-day -day lives as Americans. But I think that the experience of Bidenomics and how they try to are how they try to navigate that is go, is tells a lot there too. For example, you know we talk about uh, inflation and that's a good you know good macro level indicator of that. And now people are like, oh well, the macros are kind of going back to normal. So people, you're not gonna if something costs you in twenty, we'll say in twenty twenty, something cost you a dollar, and that went up to four dollars over the first three years of the biden administration you're not going to say oh well it only went up another dollar to five dollars you know and then be like oh okay well that's clearly back to normal what you have is a five-fold increase or a 5x increase in the actual item that we're talking about mm -hmm. and so right. i think that when people go to the grocery store it's going to remind them every single time now is there going to be like a stockholm syndrome that like people learn yeah. how to you know mm -hmm. deal with this new uh i would say price threshold maybe but that being said, is I think that the headwinds uh, that the uh, Obama, I'm sorry, Obama, the <laughs> Biden administration, but you repeat uh, yourself, yeah, exactly, uh, is facing. I think that the economic headwinds are a lot stronger than individual issue polling are going to result. Because if you, even mm -hmm. if you look at the, you know, the A/B testing Trump versus Biden on economy, you know, Trump's walking away with that, and he wasn't exactly what we would call a, you know, like a fiscal hawk. And so that is something to keep in, and that's something to keep in mind because I think that's going to be a big issue here in the uh, in the future. 
great analysis. I'll just jump in one because we only have a couple minutes left. I want to give Mark an opportunity to, to answer this question too. One is, I mean, it's kind of a combination of several issues that are going on right now. So I'll just loosely call it at a 30,000 foot level, trust in our institutions. Mm, Obviously yeah. we have mm. a election year. Uh, we have a presidential election year going on. The last two contests in both 16 and 20 were rife with um, accusations of, of um, you know, stealing elections and all of that. I'm wondering now that, you know, the one side, you know, the the left first claimed that Donald Trump stole the election. Then Donald Trump is claiming that the left stole the election. So now we have a third election. Whatever happens here, I wonder if, if it's going to boil over uh, on that issue. You've also got Stacey Abrams is going to steal the election. Yes. <laughs> Something. Um, but you M. Have, Night Shyamalan. But you have major <laughs> issues. You know, uh, a lot of the undertext or uh, undercurrent for um, for for the DEI issue in in our um, in our public universities um, stems from not trusting that universities right. and schools are doing the right. job that they're supposed to be doing and teaching our kids and expanding the sphere of knowledge and all of that and are instead you know, being used to indoctrinate our, our children. So DEI stems from that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I, you know, and I'm sure I could probably sit here and think of two or three others uh, institutions that we no longer, certainly the media over the last decade or more has, you know, dwindled and, and uh, essentially crumbled as a, as a trusted institution. Um, other institutions, maybe even you could look at the way the military has been treated under, under President Biden. So I'm worried that we're going to get to a point where it's going to come to a head and because of our distrust or our um, disillusionment with some of these institutions that um, that there may be you know it may have more negative effects I won't you know say that there's gonna be violence necessarily but it but it will have more negative effects uh, for our for our democracy mm-hmm. so on that positive note we'll go to uh, <laughs> we'll go to mark do you have a, a power <laughs> ranking or, a, or an issue that may be uh, under the radar for our folks to, to consider I do but first I want to uh emphasize both the issues that you focused both on. The economics are overwhelmingly important to people, always are, and they aren't when things are going well. When we're fat and happy, so to speak, you don't worry about economics, things are going great. Uh, Inflation, is you describe it exactly correctly. Once things are inflated, they're still expensive, and people remember it's recent history when things were a lot cheaper. Uh, So that relates to energy for a very simple reason that if you make energy expensive, it makes everything expensive, which is why I've been Mm -hmm. a fierce opponent of the carbon tax is the political get out of jail card on climate change because it's a universal tax makes it it's profoundly regressive. So economics will matter. I agree entirely. Trust in institutions is at the epicenter of stuff I care about, too. we it's not just to trust in government and trust in media trust in science trust in expertise in general was damaged during the insane lockdowns i was beside myself with with disgust at the kinds of behaviors of so-called scientists and real scientists uh the failure to um, be honest with people about facts about what we don't know and, and do know uh, erodes trust in institutions claiming that things like wind is cheaper to come back to energy solar is cheaper the experts said so and then every state where you had a lot of it things get more expensive so wait a minute what you lied to me i mean and they, these are quote experts so i think those are two two uh, overwhite overridingly important issues in fact i would say those two plus border 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 which obviously so <laughs> being a former documented alien who became an american i have came across the border legally last i checked i have a personal a personal <laughs> stake in this issue so sure. and, and you know, obviously the big issue is back to what i said earlier if you don't get the politics right nothing else matters those are all issues that animate the politics let me throw out a wild card and then mm. end on a note of optimism, which I know you hate, but I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> That's not how we the, do things here, Mark. The new oh, guy. I have, a, I have a, my podcast. It's called The Last Optimist. I got to, you know, it's really, it's hard work injecting a damn it's, sense of optimism. Plug, <laughs> and the plug, and the plug for the podcast. Nice. I, yeah, I should have cross-promoted I, it. That's my bad. I listen, I, I got to get the stuff in there. You know, I, I'm, it, it's just the way it works. You've taught me, All Brian. Right, Mark, to, optimism, go. No stuff. <laughs> you know, uh, look. I'm I'm an amateur student of, of history, particularly technology history, but in American history. And in reading about what was going on in America at different times of, of trials, I don't mean war times, but different times when there's a lot of turmoil in the country, political turmoil. The country grew anyway. We got through it. We survived it. Doesn't mean it was easy. The people at the time, as I've told students when I talked to them, were just as unhappy with their politicians then as we are now. They had some pretty execrable people back in the day as well. 
horrible things happened, but there is something different about the United States. And I say this as an immigrant, it's a different culture. It's a different place. Yes, there's problems. Yes, culture shifts and changes like, you know, what a shock. Who knew? But the underlying nature of the American political system and the and American people is really quite, quite unique. It's not just the Constitution. It's the nature of how we deal with it. I am uh, confident that we'll we'll get through it. What I'm not confident is that we'll get through it on this election cycle, right? I mean, and that matters. The next few years mm -hmm. do matter, all of us. But I, I, I'm profoundly optimistic with the what I would call green shoots uh, in the old expression, not the modern version of green, <laughs> of, of the restoration of sanity in many quarters. Uh, I think it, it can happen. There's a lot of active people who are active on our we'll call it the traditional conservative side of, of the equation, who are finally fed up and speaking out, citizens are. This is all good stuff. And scientists, back to my the science expertise domain, are waking up to the fact they did damage to their own institutions and worried about it. This is good. I think that'll get fixed. I think border ultimately gets fixed because Americans don't want their border flooded. Uh, there's a long history to that, and it, I, I'm confident it'll get fixed. So I'm I'm optimistic about it because we have capacities that are unique in the world. I mean, U.S. is the world's biggest energy producer now, just flat out. Even though we've had the headwinds for a few years with this administration, it's still flat out the biggest energy producer. Energy is utterly fundamental. You want abundant, cheap energy. If you're a producer, you want it expensive up to a point. I'll, and, and it's one last point because it's relevant to the people I know in the oil and gas industry. I, I work in a lot of industries in tech and computing Inter, uh, you know, the, the artificial intelligence. There are very few businesses I've been exposed to where the producers of the product personally and honestly don't want to have high price inflation on their product. People who produce oil and gas want it to be valuable enough they can make a good profit. Like, so, what a shock. But they really don't want destructive pricing. They, they, I, I can't, I've lost count of the number of times that you will have private meetings with people who are producers. And that's not their wish. That's not, they, they know it's a bad thing. They know it's destructive for the economy. So what a what an incredible industry, but yet it gets vilified and pilloried. So another plug: the reason I'm with you guys is because <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna change that impression, you, me and you and the TPPF. Anyway, that's Excellent. it. Excellent. Well, that, that is a great great message to end on, and certainly there's no more quintessential American value than our steadfast belief that that we as Americans can solve big problems. Mm -hmm. And so uh, we will look forward to to your work on that, to TBVF. And work I forced on that. you to be optimistic. Look at that. Yeah, you look were... at that. <laughs> Not the doom, gloom, and, and, and fear mongering and urgency that we like to leave off with. So, no. um, so thank you so much. We really appreciate you. Uh, Mark, welcome to the team. Um, you did a great job today. Uh, thanks so much for taking the time to, to inform us on all these big issues. We really appreciate your time today. And thank you to the listeners and to the viewers uh, for joining us on this podcast every every other week or so uh we really appreciate appreciate you listening we really appreciate you watching um and as we like to end uh each show and the words the immortal words of sam houston do good and risk the consequences we'll see you next time